0: I am Dr. Robert Kilpatrick, the chair of the Health and Medicine member-led forum here at the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco, and we're currently continuing with our online program. Today, we are continuing with the uh, Healthy Society series, and the purpose of the Healthy Society series is really to look at all the elements that will come together to create the society that we want to live in. And there's no doubt about it that education, uh, particularly higher education, has a crucial role in creating leaders across the spectrum of society for the future. So I'm really really delighted with today's program, Change Making in Higher Education. And we have three of the top uh, uh, leaders from the University of California, Berkeley, today with us Chancellor Carol Christ, the Dean of Undergraduate Studies. Uh, Bob Jacobson, and Rich Lyons, who is the chief innovation and entrepreneurship officer, a newly created job, uh, formerly the dean of the Haas Berkeley School of Business. So without further ado, I'll pass you to
1: uh, Rich, who will move us into the program. Thank you for viewing. I want to just say a couple more quick things, if I may, about our two guests today. Uh, Carol Christ has the top job at UC Berkeley. It's the title chancellor that we use, as Robbie mentioned. She was, prior to that, the head of the president of Smith, Smith College, so she has lots of perspective there, and prior to that at Berkeley uh, served in the number two job, what we call the provost and executive vice chancellor. And professor of English for many years at Berkeley, and Bob, as the dean of undergraduate studies, uh, professor of physics, he's seen an awful lot of a lot of parts of Berkeley and higher education generally. Anyways, there's more bio information that's on the the website. I'll I'll direct you to that. But let's let's jump right into this programming, if if we may. So uh, w- let's start with COVID. I think we have to start with COVID. It's on all of our ni- our minds, uh, and and understandably, and and so. Why don't we start with you, uh, Chancellor Christ, Carol, if I may. We'll, we'll, so when you think about your, your management or Berkeley's management of this crisis, are there, are there certain things that, that in your own experience, for example, has, has helped you manage through this crisis, given how unique it is? I know that's a, a big question. Thanks.
2: Uh, Thank you, Rich. Um, Yes, indeed. Uh, We had the experience at Berkeley of the fires two years ago, which necessitated a canceling of classes and then even more significantly the power outages in the fall. And uh, that also gave us um, uh, experience with sudden disruption of most university activities. So we started at that point working on a plan for instructional resilience without any sense that a pandemic was coming. And that has really served us well. We're, of course, dealing with two different crises. One is the pandemic. The other is a financial crisis uh, in our country, but certainly in our university. And I've maybe it's the dubious um, uh, privilege of um, uh, leading through uh, four previous budget crises. So I think I've figured out some of the principles for how you deal with that.
1: Undoubtedly and as as I recall, I was actually teaching last fall with the with the fires and so forth A number of, of faculty had to immediately go to remote That was a much shorter duration thing, but we were doing some remote teaching back then too, weren't we? That's right. Yeah, and so um, how, how about the sort of lo- writ large, right? I think people have, have, have perhaps had a chance to speak to higher education leaders and so forth. Are there things that either of you is, is, is seeing that in, in kind of the higher ed leadership landscape, things that are inspiring you, that decisions that are getting made that feel like, "Wow, we, we weren't thinking that way you know, a couple months ago and, and, and I, I like what I'm seeing, and maybe some things that are that are troubling you about our response, higher ed generally.
2: Yes. I, I, the thing that's been inspiring to me is uh, actually less on the leadership level, but in the grassroots level, I've mm. seen extraordinary creativity, initiative. I'll uh, give just one example. Um, a faculty member Jennifer Doudna, she's the um, discoverer of the CRISPR-Cas9 um, uh, technology. She, When the pandemic struck, she pulled her lab together and she said, we have to stand up and fight this virus. Mm-hmm. And they created a robotic testing lab that currently has the capacity to do a thousand tests a day. They just moved from nasopharyngeal um swab testing to saliva testing. It's just an extraordinary story. And there is a, a faculty member that she works very closely, Fyodor Yurnoff, that wrote me an email, and he quoted Lord of the Rings. He said, um, Uh, This is Frodo. I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Mm. And I, 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 that keeps echoing in my mind. So the examples that I see that are most inspiring are people that don't have to do anything. There's a group of graduate students that decided to mix up huge vats of hand sanitizer in their lab and distribute it to places like homeless shelters and prisons. So it's that that is what I've found really to admire.
1: Oh, I love that example. It's a terrific example. I think it's also, you know, when we think about the, 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 the societal ballast that the research that these wonderful institutions do, right? I mean, we are quite dependent, obviously, on that very specific human capital as we search for vaccines and therapeutics and so forth. But that idea of uh, the agility of a lab that wasn't doing this or in anything even quite like this, uh, being able to do that. I love I love that example um let me let me turn to you um bob and 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 let I'll bring it back to this this overarching theme of healthy societies so you know this is a broad question i know it's it's one that you you've touched in various ways in your own experience and career but um when you think about the role of education in 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 advancing healthier societies uh, what elements of that come to mind uh and and could you help us? Think about that connection.
3: Well, Berkeley has always thought of itself as a community, a small society of its own. And it's been interesting in the last three months to see how that plays out, to see how people pull together in this community that is now dispersed across the planet. We have students in every time zone. And I hear from them because they want their exams rescheduled into their time zone, which is an interesting challenge. Yes. Uh, but they're, nevertheless, they're still a community. So this is a, this is a short-term example of how the healthiness of this community has to come from the people pulling together and reacting. And they're developing all sorts of ways of doing it, both physical ways in terms of laboratories and hand sanitizers, but also ways of organizing themselves, coming together for office hours, coming together for clubs. Berkeley has a large number of student organizations, and they're finding ways to function and, in most cases, to front. So Berkeley as innovator is important, but Berkeley as educator is also important. Students are learning how to do this and they will carry that forward in what they do.
2: One of the most important um, uh, strengths or capacities somebody can develop is resilience, and Mm. I think we're all getting a lot of lessons in resilience. But particularly our students who are having to figure things out, and I I, I think they've been extraordinary. I there was um, the students were very uh, uh, disappointed that they weren't going to have a graduation, and a group of students used the game Minecraft to create. Blockley University, and they created a replica of in ex- extraordinary detail of the campus and staged a graduation. I Just incredible things.
3: And, and this is sort of what we want. We want the people who are most affected by things to have the tools to, to deal with them, to improve that situation. They're not waiting for word to come down from above, which can sometimes be a little horrifying in what direction they take, but nevertheless, they are trying to find positive ways forward throughout all this, I think it's going to serve them well.
1: Oh, I love and, that. And I
3: think it's going to leave us with a changed university.
1: Well, I agree with that. I, they, they are not waiting, that sense of agency, right? Um, all of us as human beings, I think, yearn for a sense of agency in our lives, to be, to be equipped to, to leave this world better than, than how we found it. And yet, you know, that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do in these kinds of very challenging experiences are are i think helping people to to think about it that way one other quick comment if i may is that you know you talked about the community element of it and and how central that that can be to to healthier societies i think we are also seeing alumni engagement i know both of you are seeing this but <laughs> alums are getting more involved in our accelerators and they're getting more i mean zoom is sort of enabled a, a connectivity that is Quite remarkable, and and isn't going to go away. I, mean, I one can even imagine if I can paint a picture uh, of 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 further in the future. Uh, we have alums, as do most most universities, who are serving as advisors to startup teams or whatever it is, research labs and and boards. Um, but I think we're starting to see something even wider emerge. What, what if each of our classes had advisors? Yeah. What if a lung said, I will be an advisor slash mentor to five people in that class? That's a very spiky way to use me. Like, wow, bringing lungs into the classroom in that way. Anyways, I, I, I just, as we start to get concrete about what's getting enabled here, I think we start to see some of the exciting opportunities that are, in fact, revealing uh, themselves. So yep. thank you both for those comments. I want to come back to the word change making, if I could, right? If we think about... Berkeley has played a role as a bellwether institution obviously in the past uh particularly in this in this public education realm if if we if I this this is a this is a hard question but if we were going to paint a picture of what you would like higher education to look like um so that let's let's be optimistic some of the things that you would love to see 10 years out is a long ways out but let's paint a big picture what are what are a couple of the themes that are Principle in your mind in terms of the direction not just Berkeley needs to go, but but maybe higher education more generally uh, Chancellor, could you could you start with that question?
2: You know, a lot of faculty that I've talked to about this sudden move into uh, remote instruction Talk about it as discovering they had a muscle that they didn't know they had And I think that the same thing is true institutionally and what I think is going to happen ten years Um, from now probably even fewer years from now is we're really going to extend our reach um, in a way that we will be able to reach um, more people be able to um, provide more access to the extraordinary uh, uh, instruction teaching that that uh, Berkeley has and I think limitations of time and space are going to mean less so if we do this well we will be able to create greater equity um, uh, in the sense that, you know, kinds of of, uh, real obstacles or challenges for students, work schedules, inability to go full-time, commuting, um, we can make much less of an obstacle with the remote capabilities that we are developing.
1: Oh, I love that point. I mean, it really is fundamental. I think we, well, it's easy for any of us to forget uh the many dimensions of what access means right it's it's of course socioeconomic but it's also other things what is here's my family situation i don't have the flexibility to attend a program that looks like that and so how can you how can you make this work for me that is that is fundamental and i i appreciate you calling it out bob anything on your mind on this front
3: i i don't get to think largely so let me (laughs) indulge myself a little bit um Universities started as being the place you could go to get information because books were scarce, and then Gutenberg came along, and they but they didn't go out of business. They became about motivation and assessment. You would go to a class to help you study, to help you learn, and finally to get blessed and get a hood and whatever you, whatever you get to go on. We've done that for a thousand years, and then online came along, and we thought that was about distribution. Mm-hmm. But what I think we're learning now is that it's not. What it's actually about is providing a new form of motivation for studiers Mm -hmm. and almost teaching them to self-regulate, right? They can get information anywhere. They can, with your favorite search engine, they can find the information. This is about teaching them to learn it themselves, to know when they've learned it and to start to use it to change the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think we're thinking of online education differently than we did a year ago because of these changes.
2: If I might add to what Bob said, one of my favorite books about higher education is called The Tower in the Cloud. And um, the the title is a metaphor for how um, universities used to be situated around towers, like the Campanile, because you had to be in the same place with the books and you had to be in the same place with the faculty. Now, no longer And so there can be a different metaphor for the university. And I think what Bob is saying is so profound Mm. because I think originally I would have thought, well, online, that means solitude. That means lack of human connection. But what I'm seeing is that we're creating different kinds of human connection that in some ways um, uh, uh, you know, are, are able to leap the boundaries of space and time, despite the students that want to take their exam in a different time zone. Mm.
1: Super important points. I think, you know, maybe one model for a lot of us, including me, N years ago, whatever, whatever number N is, is that, you know, the way we've been teaching historically is, is here. And, it is online, you know, going to get close to that? How how close could it get? And I think part of what you're saying is, no, there are elements, dimensions of what we're learning with online that, that are going to be better than the way we used to do it, right? That, that nobody's well, saying it's unambiguously better in every dimension. We know that there are challenges. If but I, I may it, add one more thing,
3: we're, yeah. we're also messing with the agency of the students. What do I mean by that? Yeah. A student could always go find a professor in the hallway, right? It could always show up. And knock on a door of a lab say I want to know more, and and when we first went to online it was very central that those kinds of opportunities were not available, and so now we're in the process of figuring out how to do that, figuring out how to do things like ad hoc seminars and having lunch together with your research group and meeting other people, and a lot of that is turning into the eight, the students figuring out new ways of exerting that agency mm. of catching somebody in the hallways. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting because it's going to give them the opportunity to affect the world in much larger and distant
1: ways. Oh, well, I mean, I, it, it all, it hammers home. I love the point that, that, you know, university have always been bundles of services, right? Pretty complicated and interdependent bundles. And 10 years ago when people said, oh, MOOCs are here, you're done, right? You're going to get disrupted. It's like, boy, that is, you know, you're unbundling something that, that has been bundled historically for a reason. Now we're going to bundle it differently and sort of see parts of it that this emerging reality perhaps don't do as well as, as meeting somebody in a hallway. But uh, I love the idea that that agency is is both being challenged and being developed as a result of this. That that does feel fundamental to me. How um, about how about this question? I'll direct it to you, Carol. Um, public education generally right i mean uh, grossly oversimplifying if there's public education and there's private education do you do you feel like public education is becoming relatively more important or relatively less or how do we think about that question
2: I I think it's becoming relatively more important. I think people are even more um, sensitive to the social mobility engine that public higher education is. It's basically, higher education is about the generational transfer of knowledge. And we want to extend that transfer of knowledge to more and more, um, both young people, but young people that come from diverse backgrounds. So um, there's the instructional part of our mission, that I think is, um, uh, it's, its evidence is even more important. And I, 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 this pandemic has made it so clear um, h- how important knowledge and the advancement of knowledge is. Um, and it's our universities. they're really leading the way in the search for cures, in the search for vaccine, um in the um in the research about public health measures and strategies. So I think people are becoming even more aware of the role that universities in general but public universities in particular, play of importance in society.
1: Mm. Bob, anything you want to. Say on this one
3: I I think the thing about a public university like berkeley is Quality at a size we bring in students of so many different kinds And give them the chance to move forward with their lives and that's just different Uh, Our ability to continue to do that for the state of california is is an interesting challenge because california is getting bigger and we still have nine campuses but you know, the publicness of it touches everything we do.
1: Yes. Yes. And, you know, I think for for a lot of people, including a lot of our listeners today, I mean, they value highly private education because they themselves benefited from it or their families have. And that's, of course, a fine thing. At the same time, I think most all of them recognize that they value public education publicly. I mean, in the sense that they realize this you know wheels could come off if 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 we didn't have that that wide access to education Of course, we could distinguish k-12 from from uh, from higher education But I you know one of the things that scott galloway if I could flag it uh, He wrote an article recently about the coming disruption in higher education new york magazine. I believe and it, one of the things he said is you know, the the kind of uh, especially exclusive uh private institutions are operating at a scale that is about one undergraduate scale. It's about one fifth the size of size of Berkeley. Um, presumably, that's because that scale serves the problem that they're trying to solve. But you know, at at what point does does society need scale at the top end of of the the private provision of of education? That's that's that question is on the table. It seems to me.
2: I think that's an extraordinarily important question. It's something that I think about all the time, is how can um, Berkeley achieve even more scale or the Berkeleys of the world achieve even more scale? Uh, There's a statistic that's a really interesting one, that Berkeley has more students um, on Pell Grants than the whole Ivy League, um, which suggests the kind of mobility engine that places like Berkeley, University of Michigan, other University of California campuses, University of washington are for the country and i think one of the biggest questions one of the revolutions in higher education that i think this pandemic is um is is uh is creating is i i i think it's going to be a scale magnifier and small institutions are really going to struggle with Mm. the issue of scale
1: interesting that, that was that mentioned, that Galloway article I, I mentioned also s- suggested as much that, the, you know, this um, using business jargon here, but kind of the, the addressable market a lot of, of a lot of these remarkable higher ed institutions is effectively getting larger. And they may even be partnering, some of them, with, with private companies to, to reach out and touch even more people. So it'll be interesting to see that dynamic, uh, that dynamic play out. Um, can I can I touch
3: on the quality side of this yes. though? I mean, I I'm willing to argue that Berkeley's best 500 students are just as good as Harvard's 500 students in any given year. I'll make that argument every day. And now let's talk about the other 9,000. What my question is: What do you want your physician to know? Right. Our our graduates go out and they become the lawyers and the managers and the and the doctors and all of the other things that make California run don't you want them to be well educated don't you want them to be broad and deep at the same time don't you want them to have met people from all over california
1: this is what we bring to the party yep great wonderful questions i'm going to use a few questions or one thank you for that response some questions are coming in uh through the chat and thank you for that for those of you that are submitting them um Let let me let me try so here's one that that connects to that COVID 19 topic that we started with It would seem a healthy society needs to be educated about the basics of wearing a face mask for reducing the spread of COVID 19 Why is it so hard are students any better at doing this? Uh, any thoughts there?
2: Well, we're going to require all our students to take what we're calling the berkeley pledge uh, when they uh, come back to campus um, to, uh, to uh, a pledge to all the public health measures that will be required, including mask wearing, uh, to protect the health of the community. It's not just protecting your own health, it's protecting other people's health. Actually, in Berkeley, I've seen most people seem to be wearing masks, um, at least in the you know times when I walk around.
1: And a related question, I'll, I'll toss it in now. Where can I find more information on how Cal is handling safety slash sanitation protocols surrounding in-person labs and design spaces, particularly those with shared equipment? And, and there's a lot more posted now. Any Anything we can point them to?
2: Oh gosh i wish i had the web address but there is a very detailed plan uh, for the um reopening of research that uh, has all of those things in it um I, there there are such every lab in order to reopen has to submit a plan that is not only about the density with which the lab will be occupied we're restricting things to about 25 percent occupancy but also about all the um cleaning sanitation social distancing procedures that will be used in the lab bob may know more about this than i because you're a laboratory scientist
3: there's a lot of detailed work that's going into that and buildings are being reopened this week yeah Uh, but if someone wants to get more details go to the main berkeley website there's a I'm not good with colors red or orange bar across the top that says how berkeley is responding to coronavirus That will take you to a page where you can learn more about research or education or other aspects of how this is being managed But you know a lot of this is still being worked out as we go along people are opening small buildings or individual labs figuring out the lessons from that and then moving on to the next one
1: and literally just yesterday there's there's a series that would be easy to find if you just uh, search it on the internet. Uh, campus conversations, a set of conversations. I know both of you have been involved in this, but the one that was literally yesterday over the lunch hour, so will be available on video was with the Vice Chancellor for research, Randy Katz, and he was talking about how many labs of the roughly eighty labs, how many are already open. Uh, there's, of course, you know, distancing happening and all kinds of safety protocols, and as Bob mentioned, Another uh, 15 or so will open within a week, but that's still roughly only a third of of the labs. And, of course, there's a lot more research going on at Berkeley than is what in than what's in the so-called STEM labs, the science, technology, engineering, math and so forth. Um, But if if you're specifically interested in research uh, capacity opening, I I would definitely see that campus conversations that will be on the the campus wide website there. Um, so how about let's let look the, the historic uh, event uh, this this last week, Proposition 209, the regents unanimously suggesting we need to reconsider this. Uh, we, we just have to address that that question. Um, Carol, probably. I mean, you're, you're involved in this in, in so many ways. Help, help us uh, understand how this is evolving.
2: Well, I, w- I was delighted with the region's action. I was uh, the provost at Berkeley at the point that Proposition two hundred nine was passed. I saw our diversity really plummet as a result of that. Um, I think people are in, uh, d- you know, just deeply and painfully aware of the structural racism in this country um, now. And I think perhaps the tide is turning in regard to attitudes toward affirmative action. I, I wish it were um, a tool that we had in our portfolio of tools to broadly uh, educate the uh, a representative uh, population of Californians. So I was delighted to see what the regions did. We'll see what the electorate does in November on the ballot.
1: Yeah, and is there... Uh... I'm just wondering, you, you probably don't know this, but I, I'm sure there are enough researchers on the Berkeley campus who have addressed sort of what, what do the data say and what does the research say? And I obviously, when when thinking about uh, voting and, and a, an official position by Berkeley, that, that's complicated territory, but what does the research say, right? That those are things that, that we're in a position to do. So anyways, that would be something we, we might be able to help with.
3: So Berkeley for a long time, has had an admissions process that reaches out to many different people. It doesn't necessarily, we, we turn away people with perfect test scores every year in favor of others. And we have a long-term commitment to helping these students. So, you know, whoever you are, we will, we will take you where we get you and we will try to bring you as far along in your education in your two or four years. Here. Um, California has a real challenge with the structure of its K through 12 schools. And, and we have done a lot to help on our end of it. Uh, and you know there's more we can do depending on how these electoral things turn out. Oh. But this is a challenge at every level. We have students now who we are, we are in the process of trying to get 3000 laptops distributed to people who don't have access to computers at home and are studying remotely. And figuring out how to actually bring people who have gone through very different structural experiences to the level we want to it's going to be an ongoing challenge for us. We're going to work
1: hard to step up to it But it's going to be a challenge And I think sort of almost any any Persuasion political or life. What have you? Um, most people feel that a principle like equality of opportunity is is a very sensible way to think about organizing a society and uh, You know it. One of the things, I remember my eyes were open. This was by the students. You know, I was having a discussion when I was dean and they were saying, but what about distance traveled? Ooh. What about distance traveled? Do you see how far that person had to go to get to this spot? And you're just comparing this spot with that spot. Right. And I thought, oh, I just, that was just a very helpful comment for me. And um, in any event, this this is a, it's a fundamental element as we think about, You know healthy societies that certainly have lots of historical precedent where things became sufficiently unequal in a society that Literally wheels did come off right things didn't didn't continue to work as they as they as they had Um, Sticking with with this this general area if if you thought about So there's a question here about AI uh, and I think it links to when we thought about social media and and post-truth and AI and so what this question will AI software complement professors teaching Or replace professors in the long run for students to have a better uh, inactive experience and um, you know, I I, so as we think about technology per se and and uh, How it's it's playing a role. Um, Maybe, Carol, you could speak, people talk a lot about getting the humanities connected to this technological dynamic in a a deeper way. Is that one of the things you're you're supporting at Berkeley?
2: The question of AI and the ways in which it can enhance learning is an extraordinarily interesting one. Uh, There were a set of courses that were developed at Carnegie Mellon. That um, I remember, one was st- in statistics, and what the way AI was an important partner in that course was analyzing students' answers and figuring out what they didn't know, mm. so that the instructor could be more effective in the instruction that he or she was providing. And I think it's the um, it's AI analytics that are going to be really important to instruction and also advising helping students get through their um you know their four years in the best possible way helping advisors and and people in um positions like bobs understand when students are hitting a trouble spot before the trouble gets really really big so i think um ai analytics um are can be an enormous um a boon to education i don't think they're going to replace in-person instruction they're going to make it more effective mm. in regard to the humanities humanities have been kind of late to the party um uh but um but i think that that you know it people rightly understand that reading and writing is just a fundamental tool for whatever professional world you enter. And I think increasingly, people understand that um, fluency in IT and data science is going to be a similar, really important capacity, and that we have to make that broadly available to our student body.
1: Yeah. And you and the campus have through these, you know, this data eight class, for example, data science class, where the, the English major sits next to the physics major to, to pick your two majors and they take the same class in, in introductory uh, data literacy effectively. Um, so that's that's important. And I I'm really I I'm want to call just reinforce your point about scaffolding rather than replacing. Right. Because Somebody going back to something Bob said, right? It's like, oh, Gutenberg Bible, Bible? we don't need the sage on the stage anymore. We've got the books. It's sort of like, well, that didn't replace uh, faculty members. And I think this idea of you know, from people are using this phrase from sage on the stage to guide on the side, right? That they will always write. It's it's a it's you can't just unbundle this and say MOOCs will cover it. We don't need it anymore. Any more than any of us, if you said, Well, I want to learn how to play the piano, and somebody says, Well, just go look at the YouTube videos, you'll learn in an instant. It's sort of like if it were that easy, um, You'd be doing it too and so so what is it about this co- sort of motivational element that Bob highlighted that that is just absolutely fundamental to, to getting this done well
3: so there's there's a difference between an instructor who presents knowledge and an instructor who uses empathy to diagnose what needs to be done and conveys that information to the student and you know to the extent that we are uh, we're trying to get these students to self-regulate. To figure out what they want to do and then go out and do it, uh, I'm not sure they will follow machines. I, I think they would be much better off following people who have done that and learning from their experiences.
1: Yep. And as we think about kind of, it's, I think our minds want to dichotomize between machines and people. Um, one of the ideas I mentioned that idea earlier about you know is is online going to asymptote and get get close to as good as 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 the way we've always done it, or are there elements that are better? But uh, there was a company that was started at Berkeley just very quickly called, called Write Lab. And and the idea was, um, that think about the feedback that any of us, the feedback loop that we got when we were learning how to write. Okay, you're in second grade, you write a report, you submit it, three weeks later, you get it back, it's got a grade, maybe a comment on it, but that's not a feedback loop, right? So we all use sort of grammar and spelling checks when we when we write online. But they, we are getting to, to an AI level where, We could submit a high school students, you know eight paragraph essay on China And it could start to speak to whether there's a good solid topic sentence in that in that paragraph Whether the thesis like even if you're not a China expert You could read that 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 essay and realize is this kind of a deep thesis or not a very deep thesis? Well, we can start to program that kind of thing and we can get immediate feedback on our writing Beyond just grammar and and spelling, and it's like wow, that would that would accelerate one's ability to learn how to write. Um, Not not that this product product in its in its full blown glory is fully exists yet, but it is it is parts of it exist. Anyways, that that I view that as something that um, is a little bit more in in the scaffolding rather than than replacing element of it. so here, there, there are many sort of great questions, and I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. Um, how, how, about, how about this one, which is re- relevant to both of you? Intellectual aspects of higher ed can be adapted online, but what about access to the labs, the hands-on, the action learning? How might that be adapted on a global scale? Um, local maker labs, things like that. How do, we, how do we keep the getting your hands dirty part of what we do strong?
2: I've, there have been some really creative things that our faculty have done in moving some laboratory courses online. In other words, uh, in chemistry, for example, they're using graduate students to do demonstrations that are filmed and then the students do the calculations from the experiment. But I don't think that there's a, a substitute. Bob would know this better than I, but I don't think that there's a the substitute for the, the um, as you put it, your, the getting your hands dirty aspect of research that laboratory work is a often going to um uh need extraordinarily expensive and complex equipment which you can't duplicate in your basement and um and also there there there's an element of uh, you just have to work with the, the material world and the ways in which we do experiments with the material world in order to yield the benefits of science. But Bob does this stuff, so he would know better than I.
3: I mean, many people, when they think of labs, they think of introductory labs, introductory courses, which are so cookbooked, they're miserable. And I agree that there's not a whole lot gained by those that couldn't be done remotely or by other ways. But if you want people to go out into the world and be able to do stuff, you have to have them be beginners at that stuff, and then learn to be enthusiastic about that stuff, and then even um, you know maybe make a few catastrophic mistakes. You clean up the scorch marks on the wall. You make sure nobody was hurt. and You move on. Hmm. The and, and that kind of lab experience, that kind of research experience, is what the university has always excelled in. It used to be it was mostly graduate education, and it's moving down now into senior, junior, sophomore, and in some cases freshman yeah but i think
1: that also you're right it
3: requires a certain amount of physicality Uh, one of the hardest things for physics students to learn when they're first working with electrical circuits is that the diagram is not the same as the object they'll have wired it wrong left off the battery or whatever and they'll spend all their time looking at the piece of paper this
1: paper is not going to tell them what the problem is yep (laughs) Uh, and that's a lesson you just have to learn with your hands but that links so well, to a point you made earlier about agency, right? If at the end of the day, we need citizens that, that you know, I love, I love the phrase, you can't be what you can't see, right? When, when we're 17, 18, 19, and we're coming into university, there's a lot of futures for ourselves that we can't see. And we need them to see more of those. That's part of what we mean by agency is, is that cognitive shift from they do that, other people do that, to I do that. Actually, this is now available to me. Maintaining some humility in that but but that that's that's fundamental and I think, you know Some of the things that you're talking about are part of how we design even more of that into this Fundamental, you know four-year or however many year experience
2: Yeah, when you teach You're not just teaching content. You're teaching a way of relating to the material Mm. and um, and and that's I, I in my experience what what Students, uh, um, what they aspire to is I want to be I want to be able to relate to this material like that person right. and um, and you know I was talking before about universities or about the generational transfer of knowledge. One of the things that happens in universities is you expand your adult universe um, and you encounter many many more ways of connecting with material in the world hmm. that enables you to envision different possibilities for yourself.
3: Oh, well. everybody at Berkeley has heard the phrase question authority. Yes. Yeah. We don't always think about that, right? That works best when authority answers and you get to engage and you get to figure out what does this mean for me and how do I go forward? So there is this need to have younger learners, more basic learners have a chance to do it themselves. So that they eventually move up to having the skills to do whatever it is they want to do, they don't necessarily want to become like me but but they want to be able to take their pieces of me and all the other people they worked with while they were here go off and do that, and that requires a kind of interaction that
1: we're just now learning how to do remotely mm. yes, and I that that relating to to the material more deeply and in in more ways i uh, just a quick story, if I may. It's one of your colleagues in the humanities, uh, Lisa Wymore, um, theater, dance, and performance studies. And we were talking about a course that we're designing as a kind of front end uh, for incoming freshmen. And she was talking to me about about um, critical thinking, which which of course th- that we've all heard that phrase and we all have some working definition in our minds. But she was emphasizing for me. I'm an I'm an economist. I'm a social scientist, right? But she was emphasizing for me. The notion of empathy, empathy's role in critical thinking, that if you really want to see an issue from all sides, you have to see it from all sides. You have to take different perspectives. Empathy is fundamental for understanding how this looks like. You know, how do you speak into that person's listening to do that? You have to you have to work at it and you know, as an economist, you sort of like empathy and critical thinking, those two things just weren't very close objects in my mind. So anyways, just one small concrete example, of the kind of thing that you're, you're describing it was very helpful to me. Let me, let me, um. we may come back to that topic. There's still some great questions. Let me, let me come back to a topic that's that Carol, you've thought a lot about because you've, you've led through it. When we think about Berkeley's history, free speech, you know, making sure that, that, students are 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 safe for ideas and so forth uh how anything over the last couple of years that that has informed your thinking and your commitment to to free speech
2: yeah that's a a question I, to which i've given a lot of thought and i i i, I increasingly I am um, I have a very John Stuart Mill like um, uh, 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 posture toward free speech. I really believe in the marketplace of ideas. but I'm increasingly aware, particularly in the um, in the world we live in now of uh, social media and fake news, that just because you have the right to say something, doesn't mean that it's right to say that thing, and to get back to the um, the principle of empathy that you talked about, I, I think we all are aware, need to be aware of the impact of our words on community, um, and uh, so I, I, it, it's I, I, I'm I, I'm not suggesting. Uh, a kind of standard of political correctness that is stifling of really free and robust debate. But I am saying you need to understand in your speech the impact that your speech is going to have on people who are listening to you and the impact on the community that you value.
1: Yes, and it it does connect, as you said, to that, empathy question and um and also the the community theme that i think bob you initially raised um thank you for that there there's there so many good questions here let me let me pull one out um because it's it's just so important uh for, for both of your roles don't several companies have r d labs perhaps that's where alumni companies can help partner with students so you know industry-sponsored research and there are just so many connection points with with uh companies um so th- th- that was the question. Um, is, this, is this, are there more partnership opportunities and how, maybe how do you see some of those evolving?
2: Uh, Rich, you could probably speak to that question better than I, but yes, indeed, there are such opportunities and we want to make even more of them available, um, in part through the um, uh, startup and incubi- the incubator and accelerators that now surround campus, in part through any number of programs that are uh, industry-university partnerships that have lots of opportunities for student interns.
1: Yeah, thank you.
3: Yeah, and, and now um, we can do internships all over the planet.
2: Yeah.
1: So pretty much wherever you yeah. are,
3: if you're interested in offering a Cal student an internship, there's probably one pretty close to you right now.
1: Well, and that'll also be interesting whether companies having experienced this may very well go to at least, you know, partially remote internships as a norm in the future when it's no longer required, right? Because they are learning as we as we have from from remote education. Um, if I could, just because I, I am in this chief... Innovation and Entrepreneurship Officer role. You're right that this question is pretty close to what what I do and think about I, I think most people on this call understand that they're, they're you know, over the last 30 40 50 years There's been a sea change and you know We had Bell Labs and we had lots of companies that were doing, you know, basic research uh, up, Upstream research and now there's been a, you know, speaking generally a, a kind of division of labor where our where our uh, universities are really doing the 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 upstream or basic research and the middleware research and then there's a lot of partnering on on the more translational research with with universities and companies and so uh, that is it is evolving rapidly and it's i think it's working well on both sides obviously universities and and we do we have to take conflict of interest very seriously we have to take academic freedom very seriously right and and we do uh with those things in place though these partnerships are are i think Advancing us as institutions and advancing uh, Advancing societies Um Let's see how about I want to come back to a topic that we talked a bit about before So this is a little bit of something that i'm totally enthused about and you both have helped me Uh be enthused about this, but it's really that agency question. So I i'm going to pose it this way and I I to our, to our listeners. So uh, Those of you that are that are listening suppose Berkeley told you, or some some fine you know research institution told you, you get to design a thirty hour class that every incoming freshman freshman and transfer student uh, w- would be relevant for Berkeley. Um, everyone has to take. Uh, what would you teach? What would you teach? And you know that that's not effectively a question that's been posed or an opportunity that's been offered. But I think it's. It's helpful for each of us. And so if we thought about needing students that actually societal impact, they, they, they not only want to have societal impact, which all people do, and especially our young people do, but they feel like they, they've been enabled to do that. Um, and what would that class look like? So that's one of the things we've been working on at, at Berkeley is, is what, what would have such a 30 hour, not as a requirement, but, but as a kind of demand driven thing, our students Going to, going to want to take a class like that, and what goes in it. So, I, I just maybe Bob, I'll turn to you as as, as you think about. Um, I mean, you you mentioned to me that that this idea of suppose we had a class called Curiosity, and we could stoke curiosity in in everybody that comes to Berkeley. It's like great idea. I think we've tried it. it it's very very hard. Um, could you talk a little bit about what what you feel like everybody maybe needs a little bit more of?
3: So it's hard to pick a particular single class because our students are so broad, but I think that's the thing we need to inculcate immediately from the first day on the campus. We need to be talking about the world is complicated. There's a lot of different things going on. Please don't focus in on your future job that might not survive. Uh, Even if you want to be a physics major, there's a whole lot more to the world from philosophy to psychology to things that don't even start with P. And, and we need to generate this broad interest in being an informed citizen of the world as early as we can, particularly for students who have fought their way through a tough high school because their family wants them to get a job. That's a great thing. Being a contributing member of society is an excellent thing, but there is so much more that a long life requires to really make the contributions these people can. So I want an out of the box course. I wanna, the world's a complicated place. Here's how you're gonna start to put together your own set of skills to go out and do
1: it. Yep. Anything you'd like to add, Chancellor, to that?
2: Uh, yes, I think what's, what what's important about such a class is less the content of the class, then it is the kinds of things that you ask the students to do the best right. classes embed in their pedagogy the um, enhancement of agency on the part of the student yeah. uh, that that's you perfect. want to have projects that ask them to do I mean whatever is appropriate for the course so obviously a huge range of content areas but um, but that's what you're always seeking to do is get the students to own. And To engage rather than just be receptacles from some knowledge that you have.
1: Yes And you know there there may have been in some people's minds There's been a generational trend perhaps away from that right the helicopter Parenting and some of the other ways that we think about some of these trends may 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 not be going in that direction real quickly the the class that I mentioned before some 500 people uh, in coming to Berkeley are taking on of their own free will. It's not a requirement. We're calling the Berkeley change maker, And that that idea of you know infused with Berkeley values like question the status quo like uh, Beyond yourself a sense of stewardship for something larger. So there's a values anchor undoubtedly to it um, but I think in essence, It really goes in the direction that both of you mentioned and that is Look, think about ourselves when i'm 15 16 17 18 um You can't help but think of your impact on the world on society as as being that of an individual contributor That's just the way people are coded But people start to realize as they mature that their largest impact on the world will come by working through and with other people That's a fundamental psychological transition. You're not going to affect that in a 30-hour course Uh, but you can start people thinking about how would I build a team how would I motivate some people to go in this direction that I want to get, even if I don't have any formal authority over them and and am unlikely to have that? Um, that's anyways, that's some of the stuff that's in this course. And I think we all agree that however, a greater sense of agency and a greater enabling of agency can be achieved by institutions like Berkeley. It, it feels like there's, there's room for more. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, the United States, um, Uh, higher educational institutions are different from their European and their Asian counterparts in having lots of clubs and having sports as a central part of college life. And I've often thought about that and thought, that's really interesting that this is a different model. But uh, when you talk to alums and you ask them a question, I often ask them, what is the thing that most changed you in your time at Berkeley? They often will say it was the student organization and the role that I played in it or what it was playing on the football team. And, and I I think the way you connect it, if you're a very serious intellectual as I am, you you know, something a little dismaying about this, but then I started to understand it really is this sense of agency within community that you were Mm. talking about. That's important in those, um, in those experiences.
3: It's a great phrase. I mean, the, the, the undergraduate experience really should be halfway to the real world. Yeah. There are some things that the real world should not intrude on. But we should be halfway there. We should be setting up students for their journey from being a 17-year-old high school graduate to being a 28-year-old settled into a path and starting to make a real difference. Mm. And that's a lot of different things. That's not just classes. That's not just everybody needs to learn math. Yep. that that's a huge broad set of attributes for the person beyond the learning out of the books that in some sense is the future of the university is is the mentoring
1: necessary to help people do that and the you know the bundling of opportunities and experiences and you know that again back to that bundling and and the the nuance that is that is the the delta that someone can experience at an institution like this uh here Here's one question that i'd I'd like to get out there, and then um you know the question of differential impact, right? Whether we're talking about COVID nineteen and different different groups, and and also you know at Berkeley you're bringing back uh, people to campus and you're trying to make sure that it works for as many people as possible. Um, you know how, how do we how do we think about um, maybe this is better for you, Carol? But but when you're thinking about sort of of fairness as you as you bring people back in the fall what's principle in your mind
2: well i I, one we have four principles for all the decisions that we're making uh to protect the health of the community to sustain the continuity of instruction to uh, um, preserve as many jobs as possible and to view everything through an equity lens so whenever we make a decision we are we tr- ask the equity question and say, does it have differential impact? Is that differential impact negative for some students? And if so, are there ways we can mitigate that differential impact? The um, program that Bob referred to just a moment ago, providing computers to kids who don't have computers. We're trying to uh, provide hotspots for students that don't have good internet access in their homes. So we really are trying to... Um, see, look at our decisions through an equity lens.
1: Thanks for that. Um, there, I am going to do a couple more from the list here cause they're just some terrific questions. Um, specifically here, you know, how how do we think about, okay, I'll read it. After the campus opens for students to return in the classroom, will all the students still be online uh what does that hybrid look like what about students who do fall ill and um you know how how are we kind of managing the the the, the likely testing and and densifying actions
2: um that uh I- uh, first of all, we're reserving an entire um, dormitory complex foothill for students that e- either have to be isolated because they're ill or have to be quarantined because they've been exposed to COVID-19. That's over 800 beds. And um, and secondly, I, every student will be taking um, some classes remotely, Just, uh, the, the, the um, The great majority of classes at Berkeley are over 25 students, and so those courses will be taught remotely. But I hope that um, students returning to campus will also have in-person experiences, though they probably won't be complete classes, um, except if they're taking one of these under 25 classes, like laboratories or performing arts classes.
1: Thanks for that. Thank you. Um, here's, here's a, uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. I, I want to try this, this question. It's, re, it's in the list the list here. And, um, what is your view on the need for higher education to transform itself? I've worked across the public sector in the UK. It worked across the public sector in the UK. Seems like higher education is well behind, uh, for example, value for the money. Um, some of the themes we've talked about, I think, are, are transformative themes. But I guess this one's getting more specifically on how do we make sure education I- is affordable? So I could focus your attention on that if if I
2: could. Well, I think that um, that's a very complex question, much more complex than two minutes. <laughs> yes, to- yes. Yeah. Uh, but um, that that you have to think of it in the context of what has been a massive public disinvestment in uh, certainly public higher education, uh, the uh, burden of paying for a public higher education has shifted in most states in the United States. Um, uh, from the state's tuition, if you look at Berkeley's budget or the University of California's budget, those two parts of it, the state contribution and the contribution from tuition, have flipped, essentially. Um, in um, private universities, the answer is more complex and, and um, has a lot to do with uh, financial aid. Um, if we hold the um, goal... That we want to provide access, whether we're a public or a private institution, then um, then there is inevitably a cross subsidy in, in tuition. It's more complicated than that, but that's a, in short.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. It is a very big question, um, and thank you for those I, thoughts. Please, Bob. Um, there's certainly issues
3: of how the money flows and things like that. People can have different opinions as to whether certain costs are reasonable. But I think the fundamental question is that we haven't made clear why this is a valuable thing. I talk to a lot of students who are coming out of communities where, you know, suddenly they say, well, what if I can't get a job that pays an extra $10,000? Why would I go to Berkeley? It's like, damn, that's not the question. The the question is, what's the difference is going to make to your next 60 years of your life and what you can do for the world? And and we haven't really figured out how to help it. A lot of people understand that. That's a tough sell.
1: Yep. And we can get better at that, but that is a fundamental reframe, isn't it? Um, the The demand, of course, for high quality higher education is still very much there. Um, there was some early work done on, isn't that just purely a credentialing phenomenon that people want to credential rather than you know the, the bundle of services that you're providing? But I think the way you've reframed it makes it, Clear, just how unique and valuable that that bundle of of opportunities is that that makes a great research university. Yeah, well, how, we're at the point now where, and we do have a couple more minutes. Um, just maybe a, a, a final statement, if either m- m- both of you, some some uh, some quick final thoughts. I would I would love to hear them. We'll start with you, Carol. Thank you.
2: Uh, Thank you. Um, The last um, literary essay I wrote was on dystopian novels. I I was really interested in the fact that um, uh, writers who didn't write science fiction particularly were writing this dystopian novels in which things like a pandemic or climate change had changed the world as we know it. And in these novels, things inevitably devolved into a kind of um, anti-Eden in which uh, people were constantly at war with each other. And, and, you know, I've thought often about those books, now that we're in a real um, pandemic, and thought, well, the story is so different. The stories that I see are people coming together and um, dealing with an unprecedented and very challenging situation, but by trying to make the world better, trying to cope with this incredible challenge. So that's what I'll leave you with.
1: Oh, I love that. Love that message of, of hope. Thank you for that, Carol. Bob, to you. So higher education,
3: University of California, more broadly, Berkeley in general, really is valuable for young people when we can engage them in the full panoply of what we do research service Even educating their colleagues and make them junior partners eventually become senior partners in the development of knowledge and the changing of the world And that's been our commitment for at least the time i've been here And so okay circumstances are changing technology is
1: changing But that's the fundamental that we're trying to move forward in undergraduate education couldn't agree more, both of you. Thank you for the the service that you're you're providing. It's um it's a remarkable time. We all know that, and you're you're helping us see things that that we weren't seeing as clearly. And you're helping uh, continue to expand the opportunities that these young people are getting a chance to see. So I'll turn it back to our host here, Robbie Kilpatrick, and in this Healthy Societies program that. That is seeming it is right on target in terms of uh, all the elements of, of how we get better and better as a society to you, Robbie.
0: Well, thank you, Rich. Uh, what a remarkable discussion today. I mean, I am personally so excited to see Berkeley leading the charge in terms of reforming higher education in the United States and perhaps the world. Berkeley is the leading public university. And uh, what I was pleased to see was three individuals in positions of power With powerful minds and powerful hearts and I think that combination <clears throat> Empathy is valuable. So thanks to uh, Carol Christ who's the chancellor of the university of california, berkeley bob jacobson dean of undergraduate studies And rich lyons who's the chief innovation and entrepreneurship officer you know the The motto of the university of california berkeley is fiat lux Which I think in english means uh, let there be light And I think that today's discussion definitely was fiat lux. Uh, you illuminated many of the most important Issues I think and you have stimulated a a broader discussion Uh, I'd like to thank our audience all of you who have followed this program And I want you to know that in a few days time perhaps a week or more This program will be available on the Commonwealth Club website, both in a video and audio format www.commonwealthclub.org I'd also like to thank uh, Donors who are helping the club get through these challenging financial times including Chan Zuckerberg initiative and many individual contributors and although these programs are free I'd like to encourage all of you to either become a member Very cost-effective or to make a small or large donation to the club to help this kind of programming continue You know the commonwealth club has been hosting enlightened discussions for 117 years That's a very long time in the history of california and we hope that we'll have another 117 with your help so again, thanks to our wonderful speakers today Please go to Club.org and see some of our new programming in the next coming weeks. And have a good day. Bye for now. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.